But now we don't have any value. It's your death sentence for this week. Uh, it's just me again. Uh, no Langdon or Eden. Uh, but I am outnumbered by the writers of a new book called, well, it's actually came out in, what is it, August or June of last year? Um, a book called Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune. Um, it is an excellent, excellent book that kind of flew under the radar a bit for me for a little while. And I only um, kind of discovered it through an article in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, and which, I, reading it, I could see it's incredibly up my alley, at least. Um, not to honk my own horn here, but I had my own article in the Los Angeles Review of Books on a very similar subject. Um, that was years ago now. Uh, and... Um, yeah, it was very up my alley, and I think very up the alley of anyone who listens to this show. Uh, so it it is the also this has the um, distinction of being the second book we've reviewed on well, talked about on the show uh, to have twin authors. Uh, the other one being um, uh, oh god, I can't I can't remember its name off the top of my head, but it was brilliant and and won a Hugo Award. Um, this is how you lose the time war. That's it, because it's right there on my bookshelf staring at me. Uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant book. Uh, and so we have the authors, um, uh, Iman Abdelhadi and Emmy O'Brien. Um, so hi to both of you, and thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for being here. And thanks for writing this really amazing book. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So, I guess when we start, when we got two authors on the show, I guess the first question is, how did you guys meet, and uh, how did you come to decide to write a book together? Which has got to be like a massive undertaking. Yeah, we've uh, we are long term friends. We met in graduate school. Um, we were both doing PhDs in sociology, and Emmy was one year ahead of me. Um, and uh, it and then yeah, and we just became fast friends um, because we shared an interest in union organizing and radical politics and. Um, and communism broadly. Um, and I quickly discovered that Emmy knew so much about all of these things and had a lot to teach me. And so uh, I mostly followed her around <laughs> and and we had these, we would have these long chats. Um, our friendship took an even deeper turn because we ended up living one block away from each other in Brooklyn as well. So um, we, you know, we've been friends for 10 years now and, um, yeah, this book uh, was is sort of a culmination of that friendship. We um, we were also involved in various organizing efforts together, and Emmy even planned a near future um, uh, role playing game. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and she's also a huge sci fi fan, and I I became one in the, over the course of our friendship as well. So. Um, this book brings together all of those interests, but it started with Emmy writing um, what would become one of the chapters uh, as a fictional oral history. Um, and it appeared in an online magazine. 
Uh, and then she asked me if I wanted to write a whole book of fictional oral histories. Um, I guess another thread of this is that I uh, do oral histories for my research and Emmy does them um, or did did them for the New York uh, Public Library's Trans Oral History Project. Um, and so we both had a, an experience with oral histories as well. Um, we pitched the project to Common Notions, our publisher, um, there, and they were excited about it. It's actually the first novel they've ever published. And uh, yeah, we wrote it up. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a lot of uh, like political leftist presses have started doing a lot more fiction lately. Uh, Verso have put out a bunch. It's all been brilliant. A repeater have done a load. Mm. Uh, we'll probably get into why a little later. But um, so... <clears throat> Out of all the things you could have done, I mean, you, you're both pretty smart, pretty smart folks. Um, like Eman, you are an assistant professor of U Chicago. Emmy, you are the editor of, I believe, Parapraxis and Pinko magazines. Am I getting that right? Sorts on both, yes. Yeah, both great magazines, incidentally. Um, Parapraxis launched quite recently, right? Or, or did I just discover it quite recently? Uh, yeah, our first issue just shipped uh, what, a little over a month ago. Um, so we've been working on it over this last year. I uh, co-edited the feature section, which is on the problem of the family or the family problem. And it's really a wonderful collection of psychoanalytically informed radical thinking about family politics and intersects with my research on family abolition. I have a book coming out with that title in June. And our novel, Everything for Everyone, uh, includes really extensive engagement with a kind of uh, speculative possible family abolitionist future mm. and reflects many of the kind of, uh, the kind of speculative elements that motivate my own family abolitionist politics. Yeah, that was one of the things that was very distinct about it. Uh, I mean, there's been not very many, but there's been a few books that have uh, dealt with um, speculative. I I don't want to ever use the word utopias. I, I hate that word mm -hmm. in both its sound and what it means because your work isn't utopian. You know, it's still very much a work in pro the future. You imagine is very much a work in progress. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, there hasn't been. There's a lot on the science side of things. There's some on the economy. Yanis uh, Varoufakis wrote a quite detailed. Uh, e economic treaty about his uh, ideal world as love on the environment obviously like um uh what's that guy's name kim stanley robinson's um uh mm -hmm. ministry of the future which i'm sure this book gets mentioned in same breath as um mm -hmm. but there hasn't been very much at all on the family um and i imagine that's uh partly due to the whole Family abolition is terrible optics for the left. We must never say those words um, kind of thing I keep running into online. Um, there, is a, there is a literature, mostly feminist critical utopian writing um, from the 1970s, science fiction, that really engages various family abolitionist features, Marge Piercy, Ursula K. Le Guin, there's been a hmm. number of others. And I think if you sort of broaden the lens to include depictions of like radically heterogeneous and complex kin arrangements with with 
aliens or androids or all sorts of other things. There's there's a great deal in science fiction depicting very, very different family uh, configurations in the future. Um, I don't know. I'm a fan of Star Trek. And Star mm -hmm. Trek is uh, about flying authoritarian communes uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, in space. And uh, the private household and the nuclear family play very little role in social reproduction being a post-scarcity future. So I think there is a family abolitionist thread in science fiction and has been for a while, even if it's not always labeled as such. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention um, Ursula K. Le Guin's Always Coming Home being one that's absolutely really, really underlooked in her work, even though it might be actually be her best uh best book um you know we what we haven't done yet is basically just given a pitch for uh everything for everyone and it's got, sort of said what what it's about in terms of the, the plot uh such as it is and and what happens in the book uh, i know that's a bit of a bit of a boring one but unfortunately it has to has to be one of those one things we have to get out of the way so we can talk about the more interesting things so basically what happens in the book what what is it about, and how is it structured? Do you want to take this, man? Sure. So the book is um, uh, the book is a series of fictional oral histories that take place in um, a future, um, and it's uh, you know the premise of the book is that we are oral historians. We are little old ladies living in Brooklyn. Um, which, you know, is our goal, uh, in li our life goals to become this. Um, and we're doing these oral histories to commemorate a food riot that took place in 2052 and is seen um, in the world of the book as <clears throat> marking the transition to communization in New York. Um, and uh, the oral histories uh, are with a variety of actors, um, some who were born or who lived through our current moment, um, like in real life, um, and some who were born much later in this sort of uh, revolutionary transition. Um, and so through the oral histories, we're able to kind of see a both local and global um, uh, world in which um, capitalism and the nation state effectively fall um, and are replaced by, um, you know, co a communized future. Um, and in this world, New York is one of the, the U.S. and New York are um, <clears throat> later in the trajectory that, you know, the sort of revolution takes place elsewhere first. Um, and the U.S. is kind of just catching up in the 50s. So, um, yeah, so that's the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so why did you choose to put uh, yourselves in it? I mean, you're, you guys are kind of the, the main characters, if you will, or at least the only recurring characters. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think of us as a main, char main characters, but you're right. We are the only recurring <laughs> characters. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I Maybe, I mean, you have more to say about this. I... I I think, um, you know, the original chapter um, that Emmy wrote was structured that way. And we um, we just, you know, we kind of followed that template. But um, I think that it was interesting for me to think about um, I, I, I think I think selfishly I wanted to have seen it all. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the same time, 
I think that uh, there was a process for me of uh, in in writing it of grieving the idea that I wouldn't be one of the main characters, right? That I'm I'm not a mover and shaker in this world, right? I'm I'm not one of the heroes of the story. I'm just documenting it, um, you know. And so, um, so yeah, yeah I think unless yeah. your your characters, uh, if you will, are both in what well, like internment camps during the like the action of the um, revolution. So you, these right. are events you're not even really around for. Yeah, um, Emmy's character is in a internment camp. I think I my character, you know, moves around um, quite a bit. But yeah, it's not one of the main. It's not one of the main, and it, it's not in New York for for the bulk of these events. Um, yeah, I, I would add that us being the interviewer, I think, is a way, is a conceit of trying to bridge between the present and the future. Uh, to encourage readers to think about a revolutionary future as something that uh, might occur in our lifetimes, that we might live to see, that we might envision um, our own role in that or our desire for that um, and our connection to that. And, uh, you know, rather depicted as a kind of humble marginalization or as heroic figures as the people we interview, that there's some like this is not a completely alien, impossible, vastly distant future. This is this is something a few decades from now that uh, that we wanted to encourage people to imagine and to participate in imagining for ourselves. Hmm. And I suppose the big question for people on the left when they read a book like this, or Kim Stanley Robinson's or Yarns Fairfax's, is why why imagine a, a future um you know the, the whole cliches about it's harder to imagine the end it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism uh we shouldn't write um uh menus for the cookshops of tomorrow uh the whole basically the whole of uh, engels is um socialism scientific and utopian um, there seems to be almost a, a taboo on the left about yeah, sitting down and figuring out how a a post capitalist world would work. Um, so, why 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 <laughs> why would you do this? And why what does it mean in general to to sit down and actually think out how a post capitalist world would work? Yeah, I, I engage this a bit, the Marxist critique of utopian socialism and the legacy of utopian socialism, my family abolition book. And so it's really quite on my mind at the moment. So I, I think it's effectively a correct critique that Marx and Engels uh, identified that many of the utopian socialists, thinking of Saint-Simon, Kant, uh, uh, Owen, uh, Fourier, um, sort of imagined that if they came up with a good plan for the future, uh, they could convince people to enact it. And uh, in some cases went so far as to like appeal to wealthy industrialists to fund their utopian plans. And that this is, this is really a fundamental misunderstanding of how social change could happen, how revolution could happen, how socialism could happen that socialism necessarily would have to be 
an overcoming of class relations within capitalist society, and that could only happen through the intensification and development of the contradictions of uh, class antagonism and crisis within capitalism. So that Marx and Engels shifted the emphasis from coming up with a plan for the future as the way to get there to identifying the dynamics and contradictions in capitalism today that could actually drive us forward into a socialist revolutionary future. And I, I think this was a, a big insight and an important one. And I really don't claim uh, our book is in any way a blueprint, a plan, a recipe book. Uh, and nor do I imagine that social change will come about through people taking up our book and then trying to implement it in the world. Like if we enter into a revolutionary situation, it will be the people in that situation concretely addressing the problems that arise that will forge the basis of, of a communist society. Uh, and we might or might not be there. Um, but I but I think there's another role to be played in, in thinking about revolutionary futures and a role that has, unfortunately, um, Marxism has really, um, uh, yeah, created a certain taboo or ignored or undervalued. And that that's that people are always envisioning futures when we are engaged in political struggle, that political demands, how people organize, what people are fighting for, always implies various kinds of future horizons, revolutionary or not. And that spinning those out, telling the stories of what those could look like is a very powerful creative activity for people organizing in the present. And that we need speculative fiction as a creative collective activity as part of our social movements today. One example that really resonates that I, I was very moved by that unfolded in part while we were writing this book is watching the George Floyd uprising and police and prison abolition or politics that I've been caring about and organizing around for, for much of my life. Um, but are really have been quite marginal. You know, we're advanced by a small section of black revolutionaries and anarchists and communists and kind of anti-prison advocates in general. Um, and then in the George Floyd uprising, as a result of the uprising, police abolition was suddenly taken up by tens of thousands of teenagers arguing about it on social media and in the streets. It became an object of mass consciousness and mass debate. Uh, police abolition is a revolutionary horizon. It's a utopian vision. It's a way of talking about and thinking about communism, um, uh, potentially. And that this is being, this played out within movements of gesturing towards this future and engaging ideas about what this future could look like as a part of mass struggle in the streets. Um, and in that spirit, I really would love to see a lot more speculative fiction incorporated into day-to-day -day organizing and how we struggled. Hmm. Yeah, that does seem at the moment to be a, an upsurge in um, that kind of thing, like, like the books I've mentioned and, and your own. And as you uh, spoke up earlier, there was a there was a brief period, kind of in the uh, late sixties to early seventies, when there was a, a, 
load of other uh, utopian science fiction and um, the Silver Age in science fiction in general, where there seem to be just more possibilities. And what, what do you think it is about our time right now that suddenly people, like some of them very mainstream people, like Yanis Varoufakis, who was a, a finance minister of an entire country, are suddenly thinking about you know, what a post-capitalist world could be? I mean, I think I think that we are in a moment where the sort of contradictions of capitalism are throwing us into perpetual crisis, and I think it's becoming more and more mainstream that the future is untenable, right? Um, that it, it, that the current track is is sending us into um, into a reality that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable by the earth. It's not sustainable by our bodies, our psyches. Um, you know, it's just, it cannot hold. And I think that's where we're seeing, we're seeing that becoming more and more mainstream. And I think as that's becoming more mainstream, I think people's consciousness of the fact that the solutions may not come from within the system, I think is, are growing. Um, so I, I think that, I mean, in a way, this relates to the question that you asked earlier about this idea that we can't imagine, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right? I think that um, part of the project for me of of this kind of imaginary is to say, well, we can we can take back our imagination from capitalism. We can denaturalize some of these things that feel so permanent. And as an educator, um, you know, speaking to young people, it's always remarkable to me the things that they take as as natural and for granted and as permanent social structures. Um, and I think there's a lot of there's I think that we are in a moment in which people are hankering for that denaturalization of, of these social structures. They're tr- people want to see a way out. Um, because it's clear that <laughs> staying on this track is is leading us into oblivion. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> pretty silly example, but I, I'm constantly seeing on Twitter people writing like these viral um, tweets about what was what's your job going to be in the leftist commune, mm. as in like what's your job going to be in a book like yours? Mm-hmm. And some people engage with that totally earnestly, and they're like, oh, "I'd like to be a farmer. I'd just like to have a little little plot of land and a dog." Some people mock it and they say, "Like I'll be a, a cop or a uh, you know." Um, and some people, probably more academically inclined, tend to you know, do the whole no cook shops thing and dismiss the whole idea that we should even be thinking about these kind of things. And what's always been odd for me with with the reading those things is people who do respond to it earnestly are doing so without knowing any of the context of what this leftist commune future will be. Like they don't know, you know, is there going to be, they don't even know if there's going to be electricity in this uh, potential leftist commune in the future. And they're making all these future plans around that. Mm-hmm. And um, probably some of the value of having works like this, uh, everything for everyone is, um, yeah, it's not the complete blueprint, but it does, it does show a, like a, a living world that is that feels plausible and lived in and it has things connected and things that uh that work even though you know you're not saying every like who takes the garbage out 
you right. still there's still the um yeah there's still a general idea of how this would work so i guess next is just what it you mentioned the word communization earlier and that's probably a, a word that's not a lot of people have gonna have will have encountered unless they've been reading stuff like endnotes and you know, just quite taken and kind of real obscure uh stuff so what is communization and how does that figure into your book so uh, communization is a couple of things it's a political it's a set of political tendencies theoretical tendencies that came out of uh debates in france after may 68 and the kind of reconciling situationism and council communism and that it evolved uh, into a couple of major currents, one around Tycoon and another around Teorico Moniste, and then was translated into the English-speaking world in some contributions by EndNotes. And this current has a whole critique of the history of the socialist movement and ideas about how to get there. The other meaning of communization is related to this in that it's the kind of theory of revolution partially proposed by communization, but is much more straightforward than obscure, uh, than uh, the obscure lineages would imply, which is the way you get to communism is large numbers of people engaging in communist acts, acts of meeting human need of, um, from each according to their ability to each according to their need and uh, seizing control of the means of production in a direct way that is designed to collectively meet the needs of shared survival. Uh, so this is a vision of getting to communism that is not about the consolidation of state power or a long, slow transitional period, but about an insurrection uh, where people come together and figure out how to collectively survive through uh, a fundamentally different kind of social order, a uh, one that uh, does away with wages and states and uh, the nuclear household and quite a bit else. And we see little echoes of this in the ways that um, popular mobilizations and uprisings, when they begin to address the question of collective survival, often do it um, through, through group kitchens and shared childcare and mutual aid and, you know, lots of other uh, collective living in a wide variety of ways, lots of other strategies of trying to figure out how to take care of each other on barricades, in guerrilla wars, on the front lines of protests, in ecological um, uh, camps, protest camps that get set up, that these forms of social reproduction in the midst of protest kind of echo or gesture to the possibility that like the whole world could be like this. Um, mm. And so that that's the kind of vision of communism that we propose, that we explore. And we're kind of interested in communization, not just being a kind of obscure theoretical current, but like resonating with what people have actually experienced and intuitively could imagine in linking mass protests today to a kind of revolutionary future. Um, yeah. I think Amanda, I, do you have more to say on this? Well, I was gonna add, I was gonna add just in terms of, you know, what you were saying about people imagining themselves, you know, running a farm with no electricity. I think for me, one of the sort of big um, 
themes in the book that probably doesn't get talked about as much um, is is the role of sort of the idea that we can provide for ourselves, but also that the kind of various progresses that humanity has has made under capitalism don't disappear in this future, right? Like this is not a, a future in which, you know, we go back to kind of like small scale, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, there's much small things are much more local and smaller scale where they need to be, but we don't lose out, for example, on like science or, you know, we don't, it, this is not a future without technology. This is not a future without internet, you know? Um, these are futures in which those technologies that have been produced by the collective genius of humanity and have often been publicly funded um, in places like the U.S. Um, are sort of taken back and and subordinated not to the logic of profit, but to the logic of collective well-being. Um, and so that's I think that's an imp- that's an important dimension I think of the world that mm. we're trying to set up. Yeah, I was going to mention the um, the chapter on. Um the space like the communist space program <laughs> yes um the uh, yeah basically a bunch of not to give the plot away but a bunch of ner- um bunch of dorks uh, uh who work in various space uh, programs like nasa and uh, uh privatized ones like come together online and then take over the space infrastructure and end up building a um space elevator Mm-hmm. Um, which as a as yeah. a big sci-fi fan myself i love space elevators i can't wait <laughs> to we get one of those uh, i know it's probably not going to happen in the capitalism because we're um but yeah i'm i'm i would definitely be in that that commune if i was uh when this happens uh in the future i'll, I'll be building a space elevator to try and get up there <laughs> but um so come up to about halfway on the show so let's have a little break before we get into the, yeah, before we all discover what we're going to be in the leftist commune. Because I'm relying on you guys to tell me what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do. Like, what's my role <laughs> in the leftist commune? Uh, so let's do let's break for a song. So this band is called Funerals uh, with a V instead of the U in funerals. Pretty, pretty, pretty grim, gothic. Uh, they're a kind of a. A funeral doom kind of band, very slow, very melodic, quite beautiful. Uh, it's a husband and wife, uh, I believe, and uh, out of Leipzig, Germany, where I don't hear a lot of stuff coming out, but they've they apparently met in Brighton, UK. Um, yeah, this is a. They've had a few records out already. And I believe have played Roadburn, which is a great festival. Uh, their new song is called Yearning, and it sounds like yearning. It's deeply, deeply yearning sounding song here. Um, yeah, it, like I say, very beautiful song that's coming out. It's on Prophecy Productions, and I'll play it for you now, guys now. And uh, when we're back, we're going to all learn what we're gonna, how the entire future is going to work, and we're going to all learn what we do in the leftist commune. So here is Yearning by Funerals. Yearning 
hopefully that'll lead into a new record. They they had a an album out last year called Ashen Era, and this is a single off that album. Um, very nice band. I, don't, I never hear that much about them, but yeah, really beautiful music. But um, let's let's come back and let's let's go into the the nitty gritty of uh, how the future works. So, one of the um, one of the big uh, big aspects of this um, of the future you kind of envision in everything for everyone is um, kind of the place of therapy, which I'm I'm doing the little quotey fingers thing around the word therapy because it's not at all like the you know lying down in a doctor's office therapy that we envision today. It's a communal, collective, large scale project. Uh, to kind of undo, undo all the damage that has been done for us under capitalism, the value form, and so on. Um, and again, that's not something I see in much other utopian, I shouldn't say utopian, much other post-capitalist fiction. Um, so can you maybe speak a little on how how this quote-unquote therapy works and how we could be therapized by the under by leaving capitalism behind? Well, one theme in the book is how much people, you alluded to this, have been traumatized by the unraveling, by the reality of racial capitalism that we live under now, and then by the intensification and acceleration of capitalist crises of war and ecological disaster and disease that really wrecked the world through the 40s and 50s. And so there, people have been through terrible, terrible things, and they are badly traumatized. Um, some of the characters are still very clearly deep in their traumas. Some of the characters are having traumatic flashbacks during their interviews or allude to how much that they're struggling. Um, but many of the characters have engaged in a huge diversity of different kinds of healing endeavors of collective uh, therapy, as you alluded to, um, thinking about uh, trauma, post-traumatic recovery, thinking about uh, creating the space to be able to grieve loss. And one of the themes that kind of comes out in the book that we allude to in the introduction is that the commune itself and the collective struggles that help create the basis of living in this post-capitalist society provide the basis for new forms of healing, that it's possible to address and work through trauma through these collective shared struggles and collective care embodied in the communes that people live in. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, one of the uh, sections I really loved was the... Um kind of later in the book, uh, there was a Native American man who was previously in the military, like the capitalist US military, and then later um, kind of in kind of armed revolutionary struggle against like the fascist militias. Um, yeah, and you, you really, really nicely showed his, both his, you know, his psychological damage, the damage that's done for him through this kind of like sci-fi technology. And yeah, it, that was a really, really, really great uh, section of the book. I like that a lot. Um, and we, we've spoken about it before, but um, and I know this is a massive, massive undertaking, and Emmy, you're writing a literal book about it, but family abolition, that's one of those 
phrases and when there's currents that really divides people because i some people seem to think it family abolition involves like if you hug your mum then the SWAT team are going to kick in your door and drag you off to the gulag <laughs> uh and some and there's a, a lot of misconceptions about it and i i've gone back and forth on it myself i've i've at some points in my life i thought okay this is a a pure provocation it's asking for the impossible and therefore we'll move towards what's more probable and I've, then i've come to understand oh no it's actually something that is a lot more possible in fact it even happens right now but what is family abolition how does it work in your book and how could it work in real life massive question i know do you want to start, Amen? You you wrote about this in the book, and I alluded to it earlier already. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think for us, family abolition is not about the erasure of kinship, right? It's not about the abolition of kinship or care. It's rather about um, divorcing kinship and care, pun intended, I suppose, um, from the uh, nuclear family setup uh, that we currently have in which um, <clears throat> in which nuclear families are expected to be the only site for social reproduction and are seen as the sort of only legitimate place um, where care and kinship can happen. And um, we know, you know, as a, as a gender and family scholar myself, um, you know, I can say that uh, this has been that, first of all, the nuclear family and its form and its importance has evolved so much across history, but especially within um, capitalist development, it has been um, key to subordinating women and subordinating um, and creating, you know, situations in which people aren't living their um their full like liberatory potential right um and in which in which basically um love and kinship and care are subject to the laws of the market in some ways the same you know um and 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 so right now what we have is a situation in which your economic conditions your material conditions are tied to who you love and who loves you and whether those people are kind to you or good to you or able to provide for you um and you know we see this uh, both in terms of like romantic partnerships as well as intergenerational relationships, right? Parent-child relationships and that sort of thing. Um, and so this imagines a future in which we are uncoupling material well-being from care and kinship. So kinship can happen now un unconstrained by this kind of like mold of the nuclear family um, uh, in ways in which we have, so then we, em what emerges are, is kinship diversity, right? So people are able to relate to each other in a lot of different ways that, that, you know, um, and in part that's because everybody's material needs are taken care of. So your housing is not going to depend on who you love, um, your, your food, any of these things, um, you know, those are collectively cared for, um, <clears throat> I feel like I'm rambling at this point. So oh, no, no, that's fine. I'll okay. add a bit about some of the historical events that get us there as depicted in the book. So, you know, in our current world, um, a huge part of social reproduction happens in the private household. Um, you know, we're, we go buy groceries, we bring it home, we cook, we share it with the people that we live with. Um, many, many children are overwhelmingly raised within the private household. 
when people are unemployed, they often fall back on partners. Um, their housing, people rely on family to deal with housing instability. And then we have these very poor supplements in the form of the state. And then on the other hand, if you have the resources, you can get a lot of these needs met through the market hypothetically. And so these sort of three forces really dominate uh, how we all survive, how we reproduce ourselves from one day to the next and one generation to the next. Uh, the capitalist state, the capitalist market, and the private family, uh, with the private family playing a really central role in that. So in our book, there's a real breakdown in society over the course of the 20, 2040s. And the private family, because the market begins to erode, you can't easily buy the supplies you need at the store. And because the state is in crisis, is sort of like devolving into kind of various kinds of fascist warlords, that um, people, everyone across the political spectrum needs to turn to more collective strategies of survival in order to get basic needs met. And one, one of those strategies is the growth of fascist cults. Uh, we have a one uh, character who grew up in a fascist religious cult in Staten Island. And so the kind of cult form as one way, one alternative to the family. And then the other alternative that, that ultimately comes to dominate the future is people coming together in groups of a few hundred people uh, as a strategy of direct survival. So you can think of the protest camp, the, pro the people's kitchen, the sort of a city block of people, a neighborhood of people coming together and collectively figuring out, okay, we're short on food, who can reach out to the farmers? How can we connect with people? How can we connect with other people who are figuring food out? Meeting direct needs as a, a collective strategy. Um, and that this, then within this, so you might have a commune that dominates, you know, a half a dozen apartment buildings. And then within this commune, people make collective decisions. They strategize and link with others. And, um, and people can form kin units within that. They can partner, they can raise children, but because a lot of the eating happens together, because there are children crashes within the communes where kids can get away from their parents if they need to, because children, the lives of children and everybody else are much more interconnected than they are currently beyond the private household, it, it becomes much easier for people to uh, leave a bad situation, Amanda alluded to this, and find a better one. So the commune emerges not out of a sort of systematic plan or a blueprint. It emerges as a direct response to the crisis of survival and the effort to figure out how to keep the revolution going. And then it makes sense as a unit of social reproduction. So the residential commune of a few hundred people becomes the main unit of social life uh, in an environment where the private household is not is neither viable nor desirable to, to most people. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and as I said, you've you've done a remarkable job in communicating that without being didactic and blueprint like. Um, Sorry, I had a question. Oh, God. <laughs> I was 
totally forget stuff. Um, I, changing tack entirely here. Um, this is, you know, it's, it's set in the 2050s to 2070s, and that does force you to imagine the future and imagine new technology. And you have things like uh, brain implants, uh, various um, artificial intelligences later in the book. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're sci-fi fans. So what are your, your kind of touchstones when you're thinking about how do I create a realistic-looking future um, from in the you know, next thirty to fifty years? Where, where do you start with that, and who do you who like which existing sci-fi authors do you look to? I think I think principally, I'll I'll let Emmy talk about the authors because I think um, she has a much more en- encyclopedic knowledge. Um, I we you know, but I think um, one of the w- one of the touchstone ideas that I go back to is a is an idea of of um, of abundance. Um, the idea that you know we actually have everything we need to live well and to dis- and if, and if we distributed these resources better, whether these resources are material resources or you know the resources of like labor and and production, um, then we we could actually live sustainably on this earth. Um, and so I think that's a kind of touchstone idea that I that I um, that I return to, um, and I'm inspired by. Um, works of both fiction and nonfiction that that sort of point us towards that abundance um but i'll let emmy give a, a more a fuller answer to this question um yeah i don't i don't know if i uh, turn to science fiction to try to assess what technologies are viable in the future you know we we don't really have any idea we're just guessing right um <laughs> uh, it's fiction um it's not it's not a we aren't professional futurists being contracted to predict the future um i read a lot of science fiction a lot of the science fiction i read i think will would be familiar to most leftist um, leftists who know anything about the genre i like samuel delaney octavia butler Lloyd Gibson, uh, China Mielville, Ian and Banks. Um, these are M.K. Jem- Jemison and Lecky, Kim Stanley Robinson. Like these are all authors that I've read. Uh, Jeff Vandermeer, another one, a, a huge portion of their work and have found really deeply helpful in my thinking and trying to make sense of the world and the weirdness of having a human body and trying to relate to difference in the world and trying to relate to the profound strangeness of the present, that there are so many things about the social world that are um, not intuitive or easy to make sense of or easy to think through, that, that the way capitalism functions, key features of its unfolding are we only experience in a kind of inverted form. And science fiction has been very helpful for me trying to think through my experience as a trans woman and what it means to live in a capitalist society uh, and how odd that is, and being able to sort of open up the space of imagination in my own work. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm drawn to science fiction, not necessarily as a kind of 
a future sketch of plausible technologies, but that the technologies in science fiction function as social forms. They're ways of people, of, of uh, science fiction is a form of social theory. People introduce a new technology and then they imagine how it would change society. And add the technology as a social form alters and rearranges people's social relationships with each other and then their psychic experience of life. And that's that's a basic foundational template of the genre, even if it's not always named as such. And so that it was really inspiring and really quite wonderful to get the chance to write a science fiction book where we got to do that. Uh, and I, I can't recommend it highly. Um, everyone should write science fiction books. It's a great way of trying to think about society and think about who we are. Yeah, well, I've tried, but I, I don't think it's in me. <laughs> but um, just uh, come back to something you mentioned there. Um, so, in in the everything for everyone future, there's a significant amount, uh, significantly more, um, to put it bluntly, queerness more people um, experiment with dead genders and uh, in a lot more profound ways than we do currently. Uh, to someone who has maybe not delved deeply into queer theory and who is, you know, who thinks that has accepted the you know, born this way um, kind of genetic um, uh, explanation for why there are gay people, lesbian people, trans people, um, why in the future would there be more queerness? I mean, devil's advocate, if only a 1% of the um, population is, is queer now, then in the future, there'll also be 1% uh, in the same way. There's only 30% of people have blue eyes now, so in the future they'll have blue eyes. But So, yeah, this is well, a devil's that, advocate question. So the percentage of people who identify as queer has been going up. Um mm. Of course, of course, this this could be, you know, we could say two things. It could be that it's always been a consistent. I mean, the biological argument would say that there's always been a consistent number of queer folks. But now we have the social conditions that allow people to live in queer the, um, ways. The, like uh, in the 1920s, there was a tiny percentage of people who were recorded as being left handed. But that was just because people did weren't it was socially taboo to be left handed. Exactly. But whereas nowadays it's fine. Right. That could be the reason. Or it could be that desire and and sexuality and how we play those out is also social is also something that we socialize into, right? We don't we we you know, I think, you know, writers like Adrian Rich and others have 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 talked about the ways that we that heterosexuality has been effectively compulsory in our society, right? In the sense that we teach people how to be straight. Um, I mean, one sort of piece of evidence for that is that even quote unquote straight norms are different from culture to culture, right? So if they were purely biological, we would see a lot more homogeneity in, you know, in how people are straight, right? But we actually see quite a bit of variation, which seems to indicate that there's something environmental going on. I am not a subscriber to the born this way um, uh, theory, or at least not purely so. I think like most things about humans, there's a combination of the biological and the social um, that, that make us who we are. And um, I think that this is a future in which um, 
the barriers decrease and decrease and decrease to being um, to being queer, but also uh, that the socialization into being straight is less uh, prevalent, right? So young people these days are, I think I, I read that, you know, almost a third of people under 18 are identifying as queer these days. Um, and so, you know, what is, so I think this is a, a, a world in which both the barriers are gone, but also the sort of strong incentive to be straight is also gone. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's, again, something that uh, I can imagine there's going to be some people, less informed folks who are going to push back on that a little bit. Just because the, the born this way thing has been so prevalent in our culture, has been like the main argument for acceptance for so long. And it's it's a it's a it's a good base for people. If 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 some if someone is homophobic and starts believing that and stops being homophobic, I'm not going to tell them not to be. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's not the whole picture. It's it's a, it's a start. Unfortunately, homophobia doesn't depend on a consistent theory of how people become gay. <laughs> oh no. Uh, nor does transphobia. And thankfully, trans rights or trans liberation, queer rights, queer liberation also doesn't depend on having a consistent theory that I, you know, I have my own, my own take on it and my own thinking about it, but like, we don't actually need to know what causes it in Mm. order to recognize this, the fundamental value of creating the social conditions where somebody can explore their gender and sexuality in a free supported and caring way without being punished for. And the private family does not provide those conditions that if you're born as the vast majority of children are into a private family in an isolated household, as the property of your parents, it is a gamble whether your parents are brutally homophobic and transphobic or whether you might have a supportive environment. And even in a supportive environment, the vast majority of them are really built on socializing a particular set of gender and sexual norms that for queer and trans children kind of really come up against any sense of basic dignity and well-being. And so creating new kinds of social conditions can allow for human flourishing, allow for the diversification of human desire, allow people to find their own paths to express themselves. Um, and that, that's, that can be a shared commitment of, uh, you know, an emancipatory politics that doesn't rely on having a confident theory about the sorts of gender sexuality. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's very much the case that it just doesn't matter if it's a genetic thing, environmental thing, because it's fine. It's like wearing shoes isn't genetic or biological. We don't really care because it's just a thing. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, there's a there's a lot in this uh, book that we could be talking about. Um, I do very much highly recommend folks go out and buy it. Um, it's a it. Th- there is no plot. The mm-hmm. apart from the two of you, there are no consistent characters. There's no arc. Um, but every section has its own essentially plot and arc and um it is um it is it is very good and people who enjoyed uh, kim stanley robinson's um ministry of future 
um, I think they're going to get a lot out of this as well. It goes into a lot of um, areas that that book didn't and um, is much more radical in a lot of ways. Uh, and plus, you don't um, talk about Bitcoin at all because you're too smart for that. Um, You've gotten rid of money altogether. Much yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, Kim Stanley's still uh, working on Bitcoins in his, in his future. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so... <clears throat> um, I know, Emmy, you have a, a book out in June of this year on fa- uh, family abolition, the book. Um, since you're here, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about that and uh, what to expect? And um, uh, yeah, I'm guessing we know what it's about from the title, but um, what's your uh, kind of approach to the question? How are you structuring that as a book? Sure. Um, so the book does three things. It... Um, tries to make sense of some of the crisis and changes around family life in the present and thinks about the intersection between uh, the challenges of social reproduction and capitalist crisis happening in the world right now. Second, it provides a history of radical critiques of the family um, and explains the changes in what revolutionaries meant by the family um through looking at how capitalist development has transformed the place of working class family life in the private household in the dynamics of capitalist development so that's industrialization slavery settler colonialism like these these as these unfolded they they transformed what family life meant and how family life worked and so i use that to map the changes in how revolutionaries thought about the family as something to be overcome over the last 200 years. And then the third thing it does is tries to theorize the some principles of what I call communist social reproduction of like what the what how care could work in a free society and then make some speculative thoughts about how we might get there through mass insurrection. Awesome. Excellent. And um, Aman, um, is there anything you've got uh, coming up? Do you want to pitch? <laughs> I am deep in writing my academic book about um, how gender shapes uh, people's relationships with Muslim communities. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't have a specific date yet. But if folks want to follow my writing, um, I'm on Twitter at Iman Abdelhadi. And Emmy's at uh, at Gender Horizon. Also, yes. have a uh, Mastodon. Yeah, uh, has yeah really... both Twitter and I'm on Mastodon Gender Horizon at Collectiva.social, and I also have an author website that's GenderHorizon.com. Really hoping we would have all switched to Mastodon by now. I feel I feel such like such a coward that we haven't. I feel like bad for the every leftist on Twitter that we haven't. We're still. <laughs> on this terrible site owned by that idiot. (laughs) It's a a failure uh, comparable to um, the fall of the Berlin Wall in May 68. (laughs) In in sociology, we call it a collective actor problem, where for (laughs) any given individual, switching has enormous costs, and they could only overcome those costs if everyone switched. I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm one of the collective, the failing collector, act, collective actors. <laughs> Same, and I've, I've 
imagine I always will be. Yeah. But, um, but if people at home want to feel a little bit more hopeful uh, before they go back on Twitter and uh, talk about what they'll do in the leftist commune, uh, then highly, highly recommend uh, Everything for Everyone. Uh, th- there is a another book called Everything for Everyone. It's one of those like pop economics books. Uh, don't buy that one. Buy the buy the good one. <laughs> uh, I, you're probably not going to like be in an airport and find Everything for Everyone: Oral History of the New York Commune. Um, if you do see a book called Everything for Everyone in an airport, that's the that's the wrong one. You don't want that one. You want the other one. It's blue, blue and red cover with some like squiggly lines in it. I assume that's the New York subway system. Yes. Um, buy that one instead, folks. Uh, so to finish out the episode, we're going to play a little bit more music here. Uh, so <clears throat> it's a band I've been following for a while now, but not a ba- sorry, not a band. It's an individual artist. He goes by the name Cre- Cremation Lily. They're on uh, the Flenza Records, which is the home of half the bands I love. Uh, they're a little bit more arty, a little bit more droney, experimental than the more songwriter orientated stuff like um, Have a Nice Life, guys like that. Uh, the new uh, single from them, uh, him, uh, is Heartstopper Part 2. Uh, it's really incredible. Uh, it's only three minutes long. It feels like it, it's an eternity. It feels like staring into the heart of a dying star. It's um, yeah, just absolutely beautiful. There's elements of uh, contemporary classical sat alongside black metal. There's um, yeah, it's an absolutely stunning uh, little tiny little song, but um, really amazing. And there's a lot more uh, from Cremation Lily that you can check out if you like this. So we're gonna end off by that. Um, if you come back soon, we're also going to be talking about uh, Deep Wheel Arcadia which is a poem about a space station. It's really good. Uh, We're also going to be embarking on a Samuel R. R. Delaney deep dive into Dahlgren, which... Yeah. That's (laughs) Uh, exciting. All three of us are going to combine our brains to finally understand that book, um, and we're going to fail. It is easily one of the best novels of the 20th century. It's probably the best sci-fi story of the 20th century and it's so difficult and it, it gels really it's nicely also with... the best book written about the urban crisis of the 1960s and the deindustrialization and hollowing out of american cities it is yeah it's absolutely stunning i've, I've read it before probably about 10 years ago i probably read it a bit too fast and skipped too much so i'm really gonna get be getting into it now this is like a, a like a ulysses level project for us so um yeah it, it's huge it's it's brilliant um so stick around for that and plus we'll have more music we'll have more we'll have just books coming up so, but anyway here is cremation lily okay. 